Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to talk a little bit today about the vision of the four beasts that Daniel had in Daniel 7, 1 through 8. By way of introduction as we begin, we want to take the time out here to recognize that when we study prophecy in the Bible that we need to study it properly. We don't need to be hasty, but we need to study it properly and diligently because we're going to enter into a new realm into the book of Daniel today. Thus far, the majority of the book has been historical. That is, it tells us accounts that took place in the kingdom of both Babylon and Medo-Persia. But the latter portion of this book, chapter 7 through 12, will be primarily prophetic. Daniel receives both dreams and visions concerning events that were taking place currently in his life and also events that would take place in the future. Before we get in, though, into Daniel chapter 7, I want to give some words of caution because I find that so many people in the world today get hung up in a wrong way about prophecy and end up making false prognostications, false predictions, and thinking that they're some type of holy man or holy woman uh, because they can tell you this stands for this and that stands for that. And I think it's very, very detrimental and it causes uh, sometimes the name of Yahweh to be blasphemed and looked down upon. I want to give you six points on how I think the Bible teaches that we should approach prophecy. Number one, it's not wrong to be interested in and to study prophecy. It's definitely not wrong. After all, it is found within the Scriptures. Yahweh saw fit to place prophecy in Scripture for our edification. The word edification literally in the Greek language, means to build something up. It's used in Greek literature anciently to refer to the building of a house. And that's what we're here to do is to edify the body. We're not here to edify ourselves. We're here to edify, use our gifts to edify the body. And Yahweh placed prophecy in Scripture for our edification. So it's not wrong to be interested in or to study prophecy. It's not wrong at all. Point number two, however... We should keep prophecy in its proper place. To be only interested in and only study prophecy as some people do today in neglect of the weightier matters of Scripture is to miss the mark entirely. You can have a prophecy conference today on the book of Daniel or on the book of Revelation and you will pack the place out that you're having that prophecy conference at. But if you announce a conference that you're going to study the laws of Leviticus or you're going to study the person of the Messiah or the work of the Messiah, you're going to have very, very few people show up for those weightier matters of Scripture. We shouldn't be overly concerned with prophecy, while at the same time we should be interested in and study prophecy. That brings me to point number three. Whatever position we take on prophecy in the end, Yahweh will cause events to take place as He sees fit. People have asked me before, they said, Brother Matthew, why don't you talk a lot about the books of Daniel and Revelation? I don't have anything against either one of the books. I love both of them, and I believe they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. But I told them, I said, I don't really feel like uh, Yahweh has called me to be an interpreter of prophetic Scripture. I told them, I said, you know, I'm more interested in, in making sure my life is right with the Father, making sure that I know the only true God, and the one that the only true God sent, Yeshua the Messiah, John 17, verse 3. 
and that I keep the commandments of Yahweh and have the testimony of the Messiah. And I know that if I do all of that, that no matter what takes place in my future, I'll be okay, Brother Dan. I'll be all right. Whatever position we take on prophecy in the end, Yahweh will cause events to take place as He sees fit. It is not worth, brothers and sisters, it is not worth getting bent out of shape if someone sees prophecy a bit different than you do. It's okay to have healthy discussion over key texts in Scripture, but do not, please, do not disfellowship someone because they do not see, let's say, the four beasts here in Daniel 7 the same way that you do. We've got way too much disfellowshipping going on in the assembly of Yahweh today. A lot of times what I'm seeing more and more with congregations of Yahweh is that they're fellowshipping with people that they should not be fellowshipping with and they're disfellowshipping people that they should be fellowshipping with. They're arguing and bickering and disfellowshipping over secondary issues and yet accepting people that don't accept primary issues. It's not right. Be very careful. Always be very careful before you disfellowship, before you disassociate with somebody over something in the Bible. You need to be cautious about that. Because there was a time in your life when you didn't know everything that you know right now. There was a time in your life, as Brother Randy said, when you did not know the name of Yahweh, when you did not know the laws of Yahweh. Do not throw people away that do not have the same amount of knowledge that you only have by the grace of Yahweh. And I think that this is how we should approach prophecy. It's important. It makes a difference. We don't want to be haphazard with it. We want to be cautious. We want to be astute, a good steward of prophecy. But don't disfellowship somebody because they see something a little bit different than you do in the prophecy. Recognize that good, righteous men sometimes, holy men, can disagree on, sub, on a subject sometimes. Point number four. This is very important. Speculation is the birthing place for wrong interpretation. I want to say that again. Speculation is the birthing place for wrong interpretation. You have people who watch the news and interpret the Bible by what the news tells them. That's backwards. You should read the Bible and interpret the Bible. Guess what? by what the Bible tells you. If you see something in the news or in everyday society and life that corresponds, that's fine. But don't watch the news and try to cram stuff into the Bible that the Bible's not talking about. I hear men on the TV say something like, this right here is talking about China. Or this right here stands for the President of the United States. And I think the whole time I'm scratching my head and I'm wondering, how in the world do you know that? Because it's not spelled out in Scripture. What I would rather them say, and I would have more respect for them if they said, I feel that this could be a way that we are to understand this passage of Scripture. If the Bible doesn't put it in black and white, don't be dogmatic about it. Don't be. If the Bible puts it in black and white, be dogmatic. But if it doesn't, don't be hardcore about it. <laughs> Recognize that you can make mistakes. I want you to know before I even get into this prophetic portion of Daniel that a lot of times here as I teach, I'm going to give you some things that are my own opinion. And I'll let you know that when I come to them. With all things that I teach, and I say this and I want to just remind everybody, 
about this, and I think that everybody knows this, and I think I preach to some of the greatest people in the whole universe, really, to be honest with you, is that you should never take a man's word for anything. You know, we're all human beings. We can all make errors and mistakes. I make mistakes on my computer when I'm writing books. I can't imagine being a scribe in a cold room without an artificial light. My hand's cramping up. I'm trying to copy a Greek text from the New Testament or something. I, you know, it's just wild when I think about that. To err is human. And I want you to know that you never need to take my word for anything. You know, that is one of the clear marks of a cult. If there's a man, usually it's a one-man show. Usually it's not led by a group of elders slash deacons, secondary. But there's a one-man show at a church and that one man demands that you believe everything that he says and you can't come to the church, you can't fellowship in the church unless you agree with that man on everything. You've got yourself a cult right there. You've got a man that doesn't want you to study the Bible for yourself but wants you to accept what he says so that he can be put up on a pedestal and be looked at as some kind of priest and really he's nothing but a false priest and he will be judged by Yahweh. A true church, it has a Berean spirit. You know, if the Bereans could question what Apostle Paul preached to them in Acts 17 and Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, then you sure ought to be able to question what Brother Matthew brings to you. You receive it with eagerness, but you don't accept it until you examine the Scriptures for yourself. Speculation is the birthing place for wrong interpretation. Be careful when you study prophecy. Don't do like all these other Joe Blows out here in the world. Do as little speculating as you have to. That doesn't mean that everybody's always going to be wrong. You may hear some truth out there in prophecy, but just be cautious. Be very cautious. And we've got these date setters, and they've been throughout the history of mankind since Yeshua came and left. I've got a book called The Day or the Hour, about two inches thick, of all the faults prophecies where people have set dates for the second coming of the Messiah. And we've got one guy now that's saying the end of the world is going to be May 21st, 2011. His name is Harold Camping. And you might have saw the, the billboards up in, in town here in the Gwinnett area. And it's ridiculous. It's just, it's just ridiculous. I, I'll move on from that. You've got people here that are fascinated by the Mayan calendar. They say it runs out on December 21st, 2012. Somebody asked me what I felt about that the other day. I said, you know, it's not Yahweh's calendar. I, I, don't, I don't feel anything about it. It doesn't bother me one bit. It's not Yahweh's people. It's not His calendar. It's not His Israel people. So I don't, I don't concern myself with that. You know, as a matter of fact, I think that Yahweh probably won't come back on May 21st, 2011 or de- December 21st, 2012. Because the Bible says that Yeshua will return at a time when we think not. Not when we think. He's not going to come back when everybody's expecting something great to happen. He's going to come like a thief in the night when you do not expect Him to come. What does that parable say? If the slaves there left at the house would have known what time the Master was returning, they would have made themselves ready. So He comes at an hour when you think not. So I'm here to tell you that not 100%, But most likely, December 21st, 2012 is going to come and it's going to leave. Just like Y2K did when everybody thought that something was going to happen there. Don't follow these kooks, man. Don't follow them. 
Be diligent and study the Bible. The Bible lets us know how the future is going to unfold. And it's a shame that we trust a Mayan calendar over the Bible. That's a shame. Let, the, let Yahweh through His Spirit show you through His Word how the future is going to unfold. Point number five. When you study prophecy, always start with what is clear in Scripture and walk through and let Scripture interpret Scripture. Seek diligently for places in Scripture that say something like this. Now, this is the interpretation of the dream or the vision or the prophecy. If you find a dream or a vision or a prophecy, it's good to study that. But the next thing you need to do is say, okay, let me see if there's a place that says this. This is the interpretation. And go with the interpretation that the Scriptures gives you, not what a man tells you. You know, you, Some man may have you all over here in, in China or in California or in Canada or something like that. When, you know, those places, for the most part, were just not even known to people that lived in biblical times. You've got to think they lived in a whole different world. And you've got to remember that when the authors of Scripture wrote about prophecy, they were talking about things that were accustomed to them, people that were accustomed to them, places that were accustomed to them. Be very, very careful. Take what you know Scripture teaches as your foundation. And last but not least, point number six, if you have to speculate in gray areas, and sometimes you do, if you have to do it, just be cautious, be humble, and be open to be corrected. We all have to be open to be corrected. Amen? We don't like to speak that. It kind of tastes bitter, doesn't it, when we say that. I'll be corrected. <laughs> we don't want to speak it. And um, sometimes it hurts our pride when somebody shows us something and we have to be corrected. But I've been corrected, you know, by my oldest daughters. And sometimes I'll teach a sermon and we'll get home and she says, Dad, I agree with everything except two points. I said, okay, <laughs> lay them on me, Morgan. Last night we sat around the fire. We were talking about some of the sacrifices in Leviticus, the different categories, and Benjamin helped me remember about one of the five sacrifices that is talked about in the laws of the book of Leviticus. That's my son. I love my son. He's 11 years old. I've taught him. Yahweh's Spirit is within him, and, and um, I can learn from my children. Amen? Us men never need to get too prideful where we think we cannot learn from our wife. Sometimes we, we have a hard time, men, discussing Scripture with our wife because we don't feel like she should be able to tell us what Scripture says. Uh, but we need to listen. We need to listen. So let's not be prideful. Let's, let's be uh, open. And let's get into Daniel chapter 7. Is that okay? Daniel 7, verses 1 through 3. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and here is the summary of his account. Daniel said, In my vision at night I was watching, and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. I want you to notice in verse 1 that Daniel has this dream with visions. Notice it's one dream. The dream is singular. The visions that he has within the dream are plural because there's more than one beast, more than one thing that he's seeing in his dream. But this dream with visions takes place during the first year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So that takes us back to the time frame of chapter 5 and the handwriting on the wall. It was during the reign of Belshazzar that Daniel received the visions here in Daniel chapter 7. 
The text says that Daniel wrote down this dream, and in his writing was a summary of what took place in his dream. The word summary there in Hebrew is the word resh. It means chief, head, figuratively a sum. What Daniel is telling us is that when he wrote the dream down, he did not write all of the details down. He wrote down what he felt was most important in his visions so that he would be able to relay it to people at a future time. Daniel mentions in verse 2 that he was looking in his dream and he saw the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. The four winds of heaven, if you allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, refer to the east, west, north, and south winds. And any time you see these four winds coming in the four different directions in the Bible, it is showing Yahweh's providence and complete control in the affairs of humankind. It's mentioned in Ezekiel 37 verse 9 where the Bible says, This is what the Lord Yahweh says, Breath, come from the four winds and breathe into these slain so that they may live. It's also used by Yeshua in Matthew 24, 31 where he says, He, speaking of the Son of Man, will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. When four winds are used in the Bible, it's letting us know Yahweh's in control. And that's why the very first thing that Daniel sees in these visions is the four winds of heaven stirring up this great sea, which, by the way, to Daniel and in the biblical thinking would be the Mediterranean Sea. You can look at passages like Numbers 34, 6 and Joshua 1, verse 4, and they show you that the great sea was the sea that bordered the land of Canaan on the west side, and that was the Mediterranean Sea. That was the greatest sea. That lets us know that what's going to take place is going to take place in prophecy in the Mediterranean world. A lot of times we look in the wrong places for fulfillment of prophecy. We should be looking at the place that Daniel was talking about. The great seas, the Mediterranean Sea, the four winds are stirring up this great sea. Yahweh's in control. That's what the four winds mean. We need to always remember that no matter what happens, even when things get worse, and they will, that Yahweh's still in control. We may think or man may think that he is. The President of the United States may think he's running this country. Uh, Congress may think that they are, but they're only doing what Yahweh is allowing them to do. Next, in verse 3, Daniel sees four huge beasts come up from the sea, and each one is different from the other one. And while some of this in the vision represents things other than what Daniel literally sees in the vision, we're not yet told of all the representation in the passage. Daniel 7, 4 through 8. The first... Speaking of the first beast, was like a lion, but had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. Suddenly another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side, with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up, gorge yourself on flesh. While I was watching, another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads and was given authority to rule. While I was watching in the night visions, a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong, with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed, and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the other 
or excuse me, it was different from all the beasts before it, and it had ten horns. While I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. There were eyes and this horn like a man's, and it had a mouth that spoke arrogantly. So here we begin to get a description of the four beasts from Daniel himself. Now I told my son Elijah before we came over here, I said, son, grab your Bible. I think you're going to like the message tonight. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be something different, something that you don't hear a whole lot. And as you see when we read the text, it's definitely something that doesn't get preached about a lot. But it is in the Bible, so we're going to study it. The first beast that Daniel saw in his visions was a lion with the wings of an eagle. The wings on this lion are torn off of the beast, and then this lion is lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and then given a human mind. At this point, if you followed with me studying the book of Daniel, there is something that I believe should come into your mind. And that is this, Daniel chapter 4, and what we learned about Nebuchadnezzar. That should enter your mind if you've studied the book cohesively from the beginning all the way up to chapter 7. Did you know that Nebuchadnezzar is actually described as a lion elsewhere in Scripture? When you compare Jeremiah chapter 4 verses 5 through 7 in comparison with Jeremiah chapter 52, when you compare those two, it shows that Nebuchadnezzar was like a lion, the Bible says, coming into Jerusalem and destroying the city and taking captive the Judahites among the Israel people. Did you also know that if you study the Babylonian culture and civilization at that time, that statues of winged lions actually guarded the gates of the royal palaces of Babylon? That's something that you can go and look up for yourself. Now, you might ask this at this time. Are you saying, Brother Matthew, that this first beast depicts Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian kingdom? Well, I want you to look with me to Daniel chapter 7. Verses 15 through 17. Daniel says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me, and the visions in my mind terrified me. I approached one of those who were standing by. We'll see next week, you always will, that that was an angel that approached Daniel and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he let me know the interpretation of these things. Verse 17, These huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. What we've done here is we've, we've read the dream and the visions, and then we went to another passage that tells us what those beasts stand for. The Bible is very clear. The four beasts represent four kings. And we'll see later on in Daniel that it also filters over into kingdoms. King and kingdoms are interrelated. But the four beasts are said to represent four kings or kingdoms who rise from the earth. And when we look at what took place with this first beast, this lion with the wings of an eagle, when it was made to stand on its feet like a man and given a human mind, I think that that's strikingly similar or even equal to what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. When, if you remember back to Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar had his mind taken away from him and his Fingernails grew out like bird's claws and his hair got like eagle's feathers. But then when he finally 
recognize that the Most High ruled in the kingdom of men and, and gives it to whoever He wants, that Yahweh's in complete control. When He had that utterance come out of His mouth, He got that mind back. And then I, I believe that Nebuchadnezzar was, was saved. I do. I believe He'll be in the kingdom. That's strikingly similar, this in Daniel 7, to Daniel 4. And I believe that that first beast refers to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kingdom. Now, I want you to also notice how this beast is a lion. The lion is the king of the jungle. It's the king of all beasts. It has eagle's wings, and the eagle is the king of all birds. Now, this, I believe, parallels with Nebuchadnezzar being the head of gold on the statue back in Daniel chapter 2. If you remember what we talked about in Daniel chapter 2 when we had the statue on the screen, Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold, the primary part of the statue. And I think here, as he's depicted as a lion with the wings of of an eagle, I think it parallels with Daniel chapter 2. And as you're probably already seeing, the way that I'm seeing this is the exact same way that we've already spelled out in Daniel chapter 2 and those four particular kingdoms that are talked about in that second chapter. So let's move on. We read here that the second beast looked like a bear. Once again, a bear is a strong animal, yet he's second to the lion. This beast also represents a king and a kingdom that rises from the earth. And if we ask ourselves, whom might we guess that this would be? I want you to notice that the text says in verse 5 that the bear was raised up on one side. When I read that, that implies in my mind that there were two sides to this bear. And I believe that that points us to the United Kingdom of Medo-Persia under the reign of Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. Once again, going back to Daniel chapter 2, what we already saw in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. Now, this bear is then said to have three ribs in its mouth, between its teeth, and the most plausible interpretation here that I see, we're not told specifically, so I'm speculating here, but the most plausible interpretation here that I see is that the ribs in the mouth of the bear stand for three kingdoms that Medo-Persia conquered greatly. Thus, the saying here says, get up and gorge yourself on flesh. And I find it interesting when we study the history of the Medo-Persians that they were able to conquer three countries, one of which we've already studied about, Babylon was one. They also conquered Libya and they conquered Egypt. Three ribs were crushed by the power of the Medo-Persians. The third beast is a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. Four heads were on this beast, and the beast was given authority to rule. I believe, once again, that this follows Daniel 2. And following the sequence, we've seen Nebuchadnezzar depicted, then Darius and Cyrus depicted, and I believe that what we have next is what's called the Grecian monarchy that was ruled by a man that my daughter said she studied about not long ago in school called Alexander the Great. The Grecian monarchy was ruled by Alexander the Great, and he was able to conquer other kingdoms in a very fast or swift manner. And that may account for the beast being depicted as a leopard. A leopard is very swift, it's fast. And the four wings, maybe that depicts being able to fly very fast. When we look at Alexander the Great in history, history tells us that in a period of about 6 to 12 years, Alexander was able to subdue most of Europe and almost all or excuse me, and all of Asia. And most theologians believe that the four heads on the leopard represent how the kingdom was divided into four parts after the early death of Alexander 
at age 33. Alexander conquered so many places so fast that he, he kind of, you know, at a young age he said, you know, what's left for me to do? I don't have anything left to do. And he ended up dying at, at the age of 33. Last, we have the fourth beast, which is not depicted, mind you, by any animal. I think that that's significant. The first three beasts are not only called beasts, but are also particularly depicted as an animal, a lion, a bear, and a leopard, with also other animal parts or feathers or wings or things like that on them. Not so with this fourth beast. I think that's significant. Now, I want you to remember that this beast also has to represent a king-slash-kingdom like the other three based upon Daniel 7.17. Let's read it again. These huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. Attributes of this fourth beast are it is frightening, it is dreadful, it's incredibly strong, it has large iron teeth, it devours and crushes and tramples with its feet. I want you to notice also that we read that it was different from all the other beasts. The Bible says that. It was different from all the other beasts, and we're not told what kind of animal it depicts. Then we read that this particular beast had ten horns. Sounds like something in a sci-fi movie, doesn't it? A ten-horned beast that has these crushing teeth and these iron claws, and we're not even told what it looks like necessarily, but that is just an animal. We're then told in verse 8 that while Daniel was looking at the ten horns, and I imagine they were very mesmerizing to Daniel, another little horn began to come up, that is, grow out of the head of that beast, and three out of those ten horns were uprooted before this little horn. So you've got this huge, terrifying, dreadful beast with ten horns, but Daniel sees another little horn growing up out of the head, and when that little horn grows up, three of those ten horns are uprooted. They move out of the way for that one little horn. Within this horn, the Bible says, were eyes like a man, and was a mouth that spoke arrogantly. The little horn here has intelligence, eyes, but yet it speaks blasphemies. It has a mouth. I believe it also depicts a king. We'll see that here in just a second. While it is not the full scope of this sermon today, we'll get more into this in the future, let me for now just point, to, point you to and read Daniel 7, verses 19 through 24. Let's read that. 7, 19 through 24, Daniel says, Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, the one different from all the others, extremely terrifying with iron teeth and bronze claws, devouring, crushing, and trampling with its feet whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly, and that was more visible than the others. Verse 21, As I was watching, this horn made war with the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the Ancient of Days arrived and a judgment was given in favor of the Holy Ones of the Most High. For the time had come and the Holy Ones took possession of the kingdom. This is what he said. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom. Now remember when I said king and kingdom are interrelated. Notice before in verse 17 of Daniel 7, it mentioned that the four beasts were four kings. Now it is linking up a fourth kingdom which is very, very closely related to a king, a king and his dominion. So don't let 
it throw you off that we're just talking about an individual, but that we're talking even much more than about an individual, but also about a dominion of an individual king. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, different from all the other kingdoms. I'm going to stop right there for just a second. When we read this and when we see about these kingdoms, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar, are not all these literal earthly kingdoms? Why, sure they are. Absolutely. They're not anything spiritual or figurative. These are literal earthly kingdoms that rule. The Bible says that it will devour the whole earth, trample it down, and crush it. Verse 24, the ten horns are ten kings. So the ten horns there on that fourth beast represent ten kings who will rise from this kingdom. Another, different from the previous ones, will rise after them. That another is the little horn that Daniel saw more visible than the ten. And that horn will rise after them and subdue three kings. That's what Daniel saw. He saw that one horn coming up and uprooting three of those horns. This is the interpretation of the visions that Daniel had. The Bible lets us know a lot here by way of just black and white text. Now, in following the sequence that was laid out back in Daniel chapter 2, if you remember that, and what we've seen here thus far in Daniel 7, I believe right now that this fourth beast represents the Roman Empire that took over sometime after the Grecian monarchy fell off the scene of world dominance. And it was this Roman Empire that was so successful in the world dominance like none other kingdom before it. And it was the Roman Empire, if you remember back to Daniel 2, that was in place at the first coming of the Messiah. The Israelites or the Judahites in Jerusalem were ruled to some extent by the Roman Empire at the first coming of the Messiah. And I believe a lot of prophecy was fulfilled at the first coming of the Messiah. But no doubt there is some prophecy that is left to be fulfilled until the second coming of the Messiah. A lot of people only push towards all prophecy being fulfilled at the first coming of the Messiah. And that teaching in prophetic realm and eschatology is called preterism, where everything's already taken place. I do believe that a lot has taken place, but I don't believe that everything has taken place. I think I can prove that here in Daniel 7 as we continue on. Now, there is a significance in this beast being different from the first three and not being named by a particular animal. Think about that. The text is very particular to let us know that this fourth beast is different from the other three and then it doesn't name it as an animal. That's significant. And I believe that a large portion of the significance lies in the fact that while the first three beasts were kingdoms that came and left, the Roman Empire came and has had a tremendous influence upon the European world insomuch that the customs and the culture of Rome has been amalgamated even into our society today. And I believe that the book of Daniel teaches that there will be a reviving of the Roman Empire before the second coming of the Messiah, out of which will arise ten kings, and then a little horn will arise after that and subdue three of those ten kings. That's my take on it, whether it's right or wrong. That's how I'm seeing it right now. Now, I'm going to delve more into that in next week's message, Yahweh's Will. Okay? 
Let me conclude by saying a couple of points. Number one, as we close. Do you love all of Yahweh's Word? I realize that some subjects are more dear to us than others. Sometimes I like to hear preachers talk about my favorite biblical subjects. And I need to learn, though, that when they don't, and they talk about another subject, that I need to still listen up. Because I want to love all of Yahweh's Word. Amen? You know, we're called to love all of Scripture, even the parts that seem odd, difficult, and unsettling. And this even unsettled Daniel. It terrified him. We just read Later on, we're going to see that he got sick to his stomach because of all this stuff that Yahweh was showing him. But we still have to love it because it's Yahweh's Word. Point number two, as I close, these things will take place according to Yahweh's will in His timing. Be assured of that, brothers and sisters. Be assured of that. We sometimes get the mindset that things are always as they have been and society is just continuing on as though it will never end. And, you know, Second Peter chapter 3 tells us that scoffers will come in the last days and they'll say this, where is the promise of His coming? Yes, you hadn't come back. Where's, this, where's the promise? Since our fathers fell asleep, everything is continuing as it always has been. And of course, Peter reminds us and he tells us, he says, Beloved, Yahweh is not slack concerning His promises, but He's long-suffering to us. And the us there is in contradiction to the scoffers. He's not talking about the scoffers. The us is talking about the elect of Yahweh. He's long-suffering to the elect of Yahweh, not willing that any of them should perish, but that all of them should come to repentance. And He's so long-suffering that Yeshua will not come back. Yahweh will not allow that to take place in the future until all of the elect of Yahweh that He wants to be saved are saved. That's going to happen. Yahweh's will is going to be done whether or not we're wrong on our prophetic speculations or right. His will is going to be accomplished. Whether or not that fourth beast is the Roman Empire and whether or not there will be a revival of the Roman Empire I believe I can prove it to you that it will happen. But even if I'm wrong, Yahweh's will is still going to happen. And when He comes back, I'll say, Father, please forgive me. I did not mean to teach people wrong. (laughs) I was just trying to do the best that I could to teach Your Word. And I I succumb and I submit to Your authority. You teach me what is true. (laughs) I'll sit here as a student and I'll be humble. Hopefully, Yahweh's will on that day. All of these kingdoms depicted in the prophecy have taken place and the rise of the little horn of the fourth kingdom is going to come about according to prophecy. And we don't have to worry about Mayan calendars or May 21, 2011 or speculating on when Yeshua is going to come back. Forget about all that. You don't even need to ponder upon all that. All you need to do is, is talk about and discuss and meditate and study about that which has been revealed. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to Yahweh, but those things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. So that which He's revealed, let's study it, let's meditate upon it, but that which He's left secret to Him, let's leave it alone. Leave it alone and not try to delve into it. People think they know more than Yeshua when it comes about to His second coming nowadays. And we shouldn't have that mindset. Yahweh's will is going to take place. Point number three. Let me leave you with a word of encouragement. Okay? While things are going to get worse, the Bible teaches that they will. We noticed in Daniel 7 that that little horn will prevail over the holy ones of the Most High. But while things are going to get worse, the climax will be the kingdom of Yahweh. You know, it's good to study prophecy and even prophecy about a dreadful beast and a little horn that comes out of the head of a dreadful beast. That's weird even listening to me saying that. 
it's good to study all that. But I want you to just know that while times are going to get worse, the kingdom of Yahweh's greatness will crush and put to death all the other kingdoms of this world, Brother Dan. It will. And don't center in on and only meditate upon the bad, the horrible. Because when you see that horrible here in Daniel 7, next week, you know what we're going to see? We're going to see the Ancient of Days take His seat and throne sit. And we're going to see the Son of Man come up to the Ancient of Days. That's the Son and the Father. And the Father's going to give Him a kingdom. And the saints of the Most High will possess it forever and ever. That's going to be beautiful, TJ. It's going to be beautiful. While things will get worse, the good part is coming. Believe in that. Trust in that. Hold on to that. And we'll get more into that in next week's message. I love everybody. We'll meet back here same time, same place next week. Let's stand and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You, Yahweh. I pray, Father Yahweh, if there's anyone in here today that does not know You, that is not saved, I pray, Father Yahweh, that they will be granted salvation, that You would draw them to Your Son, and that they would see the beauty of Your Son and what He did for us at Calvary. Father, I, I do pray that we would understand more of what the book of Daniel has to teach us, but I pray that it would never, ever cloud out knowing You, knowing Your Son, recognizing that salvation is a gift, and also recognizing that we need to be faithful servants to your commandments. Those are the most important things in the Bible. Father, I just pray that we'd be able to balance it all out properly. Yahweh, I love you. Please bless me and help help me to uh, be able to study, to show myself approved on this And as we get in more into Daniel 7 next week. So, Father, Yahweh, just bless us all. And it's through your Son, Yeshua, we pray. Amen.